Hey, I know that uh, today is the beginning of kind of like Thanksgiving holidays, and I, I recognize uh, that maybe we got traveling starting and stuff like that. And so I want to go ahead and jump right in. Um, for those that don't know me or those that are going to listen to this a little bit later, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. Um, we're going to start a two-week sermon series basically around Thanksgiving uh, entitled Season of Thanks. So we're focused on, you guessed it, gratitude. Uh, and I want to start today, as I do a lot of days, with a story. So for those that know him or simply know of him, uh, Ian Wright is an absolute legend. Born in South London, he rose from poverty and difficult to become one of the greatest British soccer players of all time. For nearly 10 years, he stood as the all-time leading scorer for Arsenal Football Club, one of the biggest clubs. <laughs> Some might say the biggest club. This guy, dude, this guy, someone just gave me a thumbs down in the middle of my talking. Come on. Come on, Arsenal, dude. It's no, no. When the, when the, when the man of God is talking about Arsenal, you just are, you're an Arsenal supporter that day, okay? All right, anyway. Um, he, for nearly 10 years, he stood as the all-time leading scorer for Arsenal Football Club, <coughs> one of the biggest soccer teams in the world. He played for his country, England, 33 times and scored nine goals for them. And he represented England in the 1998 World Cup. Even today, he enjoys a career as one of the most beloved soccer pundits across the entire soccer fan world. Uh, and he specifically uh, makes a killer uh, living covering England's Premier League. More than that, though, Ian Wright is beloved uh, world round for his work supporting lower income youth, particularly lower-income youth from black communities. Ian's life, however, has not always been covered in such glory and such joy. The youngest of three, Ian was born into a lower-income immigrant family of Jamaican descent. At a young age, nearly before he could remember a life with them, his father left their family, leaving his mother uh, and his two siblings alone. To support her young children, Ian's mother understandably sought after a, a husband and father for, their, for her children, and she would soon get married to Ian's stepfather. And it's at this point that Ian's life changes forever. Unfortunately, though, it is not for the best that it changes. Shortly after their wedding, Ian's stepfather began to get violent, and the violence progressed until Ian's stepfather was regularly abusing his mother right in front of him and his two older siblings. Describing these moments in memory, Ian says, and I want to be clear, there's going to be some graphic image, some graphic language, I should say, here. And so if you need to check out for a second, please do. But describing those memories, Ian says, he grabbed my mom by the neck and she was so small. It just made me feel so helpless. She was trying to say sorry while he had his hand around her throat. When I was going to bed, I just could not get the memory out of my, out of my mind how helpless she was. It wasn't Ian's stepfather's abuse that cut Ian the deepest, though. Oftentimes, his mother would turn around after being abused by his father, his stepfather, and begin to abuse her children, seeking any kind of outlet she could for the anger and the rage that was bubbling under the surface as a result of being abused herself. It would be understandable to question how such a brilliant career, more than that, such a brilliant man, came from such tragic beginnings. And according to Ian, one specific name comes to mind, Mr. Pigden. 
Mr. Pigden was a World War II veteran, and he was also Ian's elementary school teacher. He made it a special point to greet Ian every day. He allowed Ian to be a helper in class, and he held Ian in high esteem amongst the entirety of his classroom. He celebrated Ian when he did well, and he came alongside Ian when challenges at school arose. The two became close, and a certain guidance and care and bond formed between them uh, through these days at school. Describing Mr. Pigden, Ian says this. Mr. Pigden wanted to teach, and he probably wanted to teach because he wanted to find a student that he could change their lives. And it was me. I was the guy. I can't even tell you. I literally think of him every day. He gave me self-worth made me feel like I was important. I don't know why I didn't tell Mr. Pigden about what was happening at home, but just having his encouragement really helped. He changed my life by recognizing that I needed more when I was standing outside that classroom, and he gave it to me. In a surprise video clip from the mid-90s, uh, after years of not knowing uh, the welfare of Mr. Pigden, Ian's deep gratitude and love for Mr. Pigden was actually captured on camera. And I want y'all to watch that. Um, I've watched that clip so many times that I have no need to watch it again. I can memorize every frame in which he greets Mr. Pigden. Even in adulthood, though, Mr. Pigden's support never stopped. When the Allies won World War II, Mr. Pigden was one of the pilots chosen to fly over Buckingham Palace in celebration of the victory, an incredible honor and achievement. And years later, describing a conversation that Ian and Mr. Pigden had the very day that clip was filmed, an emotional Ian Wright recalls, I remember him saying, he was more proud of me playing for England than he was of himself flying over Buckingham Palace. He's the greatest man in the entire world. Here is uh, the point of me telling you that story. Gratitude changes us. It, cha it fundamentally changes us. It shapes us. Gratitude helps us see what's valuable in life and motivates us to pursue it and to pursue it more. Right? The lives that have been changed by Ian Wright's efforts I don't know if they're changed without him recognizing the love that he receives from Mr. Pigden. I don't know if they're changed if not for the impact that Mr. Pigden has on his life. Why? Because gratitude reminds us of the deep love we've been given in our lives, whether we deserved it or whether we didn't. Maybe better than the phrase gratitude changes us, it may be more fitting to say that gratitude is the change that comes from recognizing love. More than gratitude changes us, gratitude is actually the change that comes when we recognize love. We see this vividly across Scripture, right? But, but there may be no, power, no more powerful vision than the grat of gratitude than the picture uh, that Scripture gives us in a woman crying at the feet of Jesus. In Luke 7, we read this account, and I want you to read it with me. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. 
She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. A woman in tears washing the feet of the new prophet, the new Messiah, the one who had made so many um, statements when he arrived on the scene through prayer, through healing. I mean, he was pretty well-known, Jesus, at this point. It wasn't like he was a nobody. The Pharisees were even inviting him into their home. Without doubt, if I'm being honest, while it moves us, it would have been not without its controversy, controversy in Jesus' day. Now, I will say, though, that once we understand the controversy, that's when we actually begin to understand the beauty. If we take a look, let's, let's keep reading for a second. Luke 7, 39, it says, When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She is a sinner, the kind of woman that's touching him. While to our modern sensibilities, that seems like a phrase littered with pride and arrogance and some classism, and then you like sprinkle a little sexism on top of that, right? Like it, it feels like that to us for all intents and purposes, right? For Jesus' day, it was common and understandable. It was a common and understandable sentiment. In a world where ceremonial cleanness Right, This idea that there's a set of rules that dictate whether you are worthy or not worthy, not just to approach God, but you're worthy or not worthy to be a part of a community at all, to be a part of the city, to feel like you have friends, to feel like you have a support structure. In a world where these rules were held without fail and without fault and without budging, it would have been beyond understandable. It would have been reasonable for many to question this sinful woman at the feet of this new prophet. Where did he come from? And who is he? To not understand the rules. To not be obeying him. Who was she? To not understand the rules. And to step, to step so far outside of the bounds that the rules created for. Regarding this woman, we don't know what her sin was. We don't know her story. We don't know what she did. What happened in her life to get her to that moment? The only image we get, the only information we get is a tearful woman cleaning Jesus' feet with a potent mixture of tears and perfume, and that's it. But for Jesus, right, that, that image was beautiful. For the people that were there, the tearful woman cleaning Jesus' feet, right? The image of the unclean, dishonoring the clean and making what's clean unclean, breaking the rules. That may have been a dishonor. It may have been looked down on, but for Jesus, this very image was beautiful. How do we know that? Well, he says it. We continue reading in Luke 7, 40, and we're gonna read for a minute here, but, but I want us to read it together. Jesus replied to him, the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. 
Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'm, uh, I'm not sure that theological language is sufficient for a moment like this. A lot of y'all know me. You know that I'm, I'm nerdy. I like the Bible. I like theology. And as I was preparing, I had so many different thoughts theologically about what to say in this specific moment. But I don't think theological language, maybe even theological ideas are sufficient for a moment like this. I'm not sure if the history of foot washing before meals and the later Christian adaptations uh, for service and sacrifice of foot washing are, are, are sufficient here. I'm not sure if the history of how what's clean being made unclean is radically turned upside down by Jesus making what's unclean clean through his own presence and his touch. I'm not sure that's actually sufficient and helpful here. I'm not sure the theological difference between a righteousness that is our own versus a righteousness that comes from our Savior, imputing it and giving it out of grace and mercy to us. I'm not sure that's sufficient for, for this specific moment because for this woman, she didn't know what her foot washing was going to mean down the road. And she also didn't know if she was making him unclean or if he would somehow make her clean. She didn't know what God's righteousness looked like versus what her own righteousness was all about all she knew is that when no one wanted her when no one wanted her and when she was alone and when she was deserted and when she was unclean and she was forgotten he loved her that's all she knew she didn't have any of the other stuff figured out she didn't know about any of the ceremonial issues she only knew when I was unclean and forgotten, and an outsider, and, 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 and no one wanted me. He loved me. And her response was simple. It wasn't laced with questions about what was proper or what was ceremonial. Her only response was, now what can I do? That was it. Now what can I do for the one who loved me? Right now, in this moment, as I'm feeling overwhelmed by the truth of his love and his care, what can I do? So she took a bottle of perfume and to the astonishment of the crowd entered the house of a Pharisee, someone who had marginalized her and kept her on the outside and reinforced day after day and time after time that feeling of being outside and unloved and unwanted. She entered the Pharisee's house and kneeled down and washed the feet of the one who loved her. That's all she knew to do, so that's what she did. Friend, gratitude changes us better 
Gratitude is the change that comes from recognizing love. More than a thank you, more than even our rhythms, gratitude is the deep response of the soul that recognizes the reality I'm loved. I'm loved and responds, now what can I do? That moment, friend, is is what I believe is the beginning of the Christian life. I'm loved. Now what can I do? Because whether it's singing a song or loving a neighbor or sharing your faith or reading the Bible or spending time in prayer, what makes those things Christian is not that the name of Jesus is uttered during them, but that the presence of the love of Jesus is felt by the person doing it. That's what makes those things Christian. Not simply that we say his name, but that we know his love, that that we understand his compassion for us, that we understand in the midst of our failure, he does not fail to love. And in the midst of our bitterness, he he doesn't fail to keep pursuing us. The fact that we understand, the fact that we wrestle against his very heart is the idea that something is Christian. Why do you think the Psalms are filled with people that aren't just saying exalt and praise your name, but they're also saying, why are you doing this? How long will you allow the unjust to prosper? Why? Because they believe he's there. They believe his heart. They believe his love. They believe the reality of who he is. And so the very prayer that questions what they believe to be true about who God is, is in and of itself an act of worship to God. That's why James says it requires faith to come to God. It requires faith to please God, I mean. Why? Because because you have to believe that he exists in order to approach him. What makes our acts Christian is not just the presence of the name of Jesus, but the presence of the love of Jesus and the recognition of a human that they're loved. And the simple asking of a question, now what do I do? In my life, this moment came when I was 20 years old. A lot of y'all know that story. I'm going to tell it again. I was 20 years old, and I spent the last two years high as a kite. I was walking around, my eyes were like this color most of the time. I had tried to find an avenue of finding happiness through things like music or friends or girls or drugs or whatever else you can really think of. And in that pursuit, I felt myself empty and further and further away from where I wanted to be. And I always describe myself that at 20 years old, I was one of the more empty 20-year-olds you would have found walking down the street. There is a quote by Charles Spurgeon that says, sometimes you don't know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. And I definitely was on that path of learning that lesson. I was actively at 20 trying to figure out the emptiness of everything but Christ. And I would go to church every Sunday because that was a part of my culture growing up. I was there every Sunday. I was like this sometimes. I also, I also was a magician with some eye drops, I'll tell you what. But nonetheless, I was there most days. And I would play music, and I would sit down, and I would play music, and I would sit down. And there was just one day where there was just this inkling of truth that entered my soul. I remember I got off the keyboard. I will never forget the moment or the place. I went and I sat down in a little chair next to a water cooler, and I was hit by this overwhelming reality 
I love you. And instantaneously, my heart was like, no, no, this is, that's not true. Because I indexed every failure and every mess up. I grew up in church. I knew what I was supposed to do and what I was not supposed to do. And I knew that over the past several years, I had done basically everything I wasn't supposed to do and had done virtually nothing that I knew I was supposed to do. And in my mind, that meant that I was unworthy of the love of this person that they call God. But in that chair, next to that water cooler, my soul was confronted by a simple truth, I love you. And I didn't give in that day. I, I gathered myself. I was like, I'm high right now. That was my actual feeling. I was like, I'm high. I'm way too high right now in this church building. And I went on with my life. So the next Sunday, I sat in the same chair and thought the exact same thing. And the Sunday after that again, and the Sunday after that again, until after the third or fourth week, in the middle of the week, I was thinking about that day, and I was feeling empty, and I was feeling broken, and I was feeling sad. And I went back to that church, sat in that, not in that chair, but just in another chair. It was the middle of a Tuesday, middle of the week, and I asked God to help me, and he did. And my life has, in essence, been a pursuit of the knowledge of his love every day since that day. But that moment, that moment did something to me. Gratitude is the change that comes from recognizing love. He looked at her, said, you're saved. This woman has been forgiven much. You're saved. I guarantee you that woman's story is powerful from that moment on. Not perfect, but I guarantee you it was powerful. Gratitude is the change that comes from recognizing love. That day, that day, something happened to me. I'm still, I think, today trying to figure out what that was in a lot of ways. Heck, me trying to figure out is a part of why we're in this room right now. Like, this is an experiment. Y'all don't know it. But this is kind of an experiment of me trying to figure out what the heck happened that day, right? Like, it's all been just like, what happened? Because I know I came in messed up. I came in broken and empty and sad. And whatever happened that day, I got up and I realized I'm loved. And from realizing I'm loved, I asked a simple question, what, what do I do now? What can I do? And here's the thing. Like this woman, it wasn't, it wasn't good. I mean, it was good. It was beautiful. It was sacrificial, but it wasn't proper. It wasn't ceremonially correct. It wasn't theologically correct. For those of y'all, most of y'all know, but I think some of y'all don't, I basically got up and was like, I'm going to read the Bible obsessively. And then when I read the Bible obsessively, I was like, it seems like uh, evangelism is what these people do. And then from there, it was like, I need to evangelize the 25 people a day about Jesus. And if I don't do that, then I'm not a good Christian. Let me know. That's way off. That is wildly off. It is dramatically off. It is as off as this woman who is unclean. coming to the one who is clean to say, I'm loved, and I don't know what else to do besides this, so I'm going to do it, so I'm going to walk in here, I'm going to feel the social pressure, and I'm going to feel the eyes on me, and I'm going to feel the, the, the angst of people like, dude, get her out of here, but I have something I need to do in response to a love that I'm, I'm just now realizing, and so I've come to the realization that I'm loved, and now I've asked the question, what can I do, and today it's this. And so was I off? I was extremely off. 
I was very wrong. But you know what? I think God looked at that boy walking around Texas State University and was like, man, your sins are forgiven, brother. Those who have been forgiven much, man, they love much. And you will put yourself out there on the line, even though it is backed up by some wild theology. This dude is way off. But you know what? He loves much. Gratitude is the change that comes when we recognize love. Friends, today, as we enter into a holiday where we are meant to express gratitude, my prayer is that you would start here, right? That this would be your starting place for gratitude, okay? And that today, whether it's singing a song or taking communion, which we're going to do in a couple minutes, uh, or, or, or it's praying as we close today, uh, that what you do, uh, that it would be done uh, rooted in the truth that God loves you, that you are loved, right? That you're loved. And from that place of realizing I'm loved, you would then ask that simple question, now what do I do? And if that means that right now it's going to be taking communion, that you would do it not as a routine or a rhythm, but that you would do it in steeped in the beautiful truth that you're loved by God, that he sees you, that when you were outside and when you were broken, when no one wanted you, when you felt alone or isolated, Every moment in your life where you've ever felt anything beyond or other than the simple idea that you are loved and accepted and cared for, that this God saw you and simply said, I love you. Like the sinful woman who was forgotten about, like the young drug-addicted boy that sat in the chair next to the cooler, that God looks at you in that exact same way that he looks at you right now and wholeheartedly believes and feels and communicates, I love you. He loves you. He loves you. I'm not trying to goodwill hunt you right now. But low key, I don't know how much we fully grasp that. I'm not sure how much I fully grasp that. Like I said, I'm still trying to figure it out. I have no clue what happened. I have no clue why I'm here. It could be a dream. I might be in a simulation right now. Because some of me is like, fam, I don't know what happened that day. I'm snotting on myself and wiping it on shirts and looking at you. And I don't even care. All from one reality, I love you. And he sits, he stands, he's with you as you sit in this room declaring the same truth, I love you. From that beautiful point of realization, my prayer is that you will start recognizing those beautiful moments of love in your life everywhere they appear. I, I know, and here, I want to I give an asterisk here before we close up that, I know that's not as easy as this one story. This one story is idealistic, right? Woman is afar off. She's isolated. She's forgotten. She's shunned. The Redeemer loves her. The perfect Savior loves her. What fault could she find in the Redeemer? My man is literally out here loving the, ab the literal hell out of people. Uh, he's out here. And, of course, her response is like, Amen. So I understand it's not as simple as a story. There's dynamics in our lives. There's dynamics in your life that are challenging. For many of us, some of our earliest experiences with love 
are with the same people that gave us our earliest introductions to pain and hurt. And so it's hard. I hear that. And no one here is asking you to place that to the side and only think of the good. That somehow our gratitude is only meant to be, I find what's good and I find what's beautiful. And I just ignore the rest of it because that's not, that's not what our Christian faith is. However, it is precisely in that tension of understanding that we are loved by a God who is merciful and mighty, who's forgiving and just, right, who's compassionate, but he's also a good judge. It's precisely in that tension where we recognize what it means for the holy and the infinite God to love the unholy and the clean to, unlove the un, to, to love the unclean. Right? It's precisely in that tension that we recognize with the most clarity, I am loved. And it's precisely in that tension that we ask the question with the most sincerity, now what can I do? It's an understanding of that tension for us that we begin and are invited to hold that tension for those that are around us, for those that maybe we do hold a beautiful memory of love but a hurtful memory of pain. And like Jesus, who's shunned by those who he loves but loves them infinitely all the same, we're invited in to share in that same tension. Whether the answer to the question, what can I do now, is fighting through what's hard to find, what we're grateful for, and therefore being grateful and firm and wise, or whether it's leaning into Jesus, right? It may be that it's leaning into Jesus, the one who loves us, right, to find our gratitude, recognizing I'm not at the place where I can find gratitude at this table right now, right? Whichever direction that is or any in between or any other, Right, that's for you to answer. I can't answer that for you. No one here is going to answer that for you. I want to lovingly say this. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with the Bible. The Bible is not going to answer that for you. It will be a walk that you yourself will have to take, understanding the tension of the almighty, just, merciful God loving you, and then, and then navigating how do I, with wisdom, hold in tension the fact that I, I meant to have gratitude, and to find something beautiful in the midst of sometimes places where, where a lot of pain has occurred as well. And that's not just on Thursday. That's everywhere. That's life. That's life. That's walking in the realization that I'm loved, despite me. And then from there, asking the honest question, now what can I do? It's my hope today, however uh, you decide, um, that each of us would walk away recognizing this simple truth. I'm loved. And from there asking a simple question, now what can I do? I'm loved. Now what can I do? Distinctly different than now what can I do to be loved, but rather I'm loved. Now what can I do? I believe if, if you walk from here today, asking those questions, asking that question, I should say, and having that realization, you will have an opportunity on Thursday, no matter the context you're in. Some of us, and I want to know, I'm not talking to everybody in here. Some of y'all going to go to Thanksgiving and be like, I love today. That's amazing. Some of us going to, I mean, not some of us, some of us are, are going to be there. Some of us going to be in that place of being like, no, this is hard. Wherever you are, however you're able to navigate that, right? 
if you're coming at it through the lens of I am loved, now what can I do? Uh, it's, my, it's my prayer that your heart would be anchored not just in peace but in gratitude in response to the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Spirit that is actively at work and pursuing you now. So with that, let's pray, uh, and then I'm going to invite Mike and, Mike and the gang who are singing back up here. Father, thank you so much. Jesus, I love you. Like Ian Wright looking at Mr. Pigden and saying, the greatest man in the world. Uh, today, my heart looks at you and says, that's the greatest man that's ever lived. The Son of God, my Savior, my Redeemer, the God-man, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that when I, like this woman, was afar off and felt empty and was hurt, felt abandoned by my own actions, not even the people around me, but sometimes abandoned by myself, you pursued me, you loved me. And thank you that every ear that's hearing this, whether that is true of them now or not, that is your vision for their life as well. This beautiful moment where we recognize goodness and mercy pursued me all of my life. That it is you who pursues us in the midst of pain, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of joy, and in the midst of celebration. You, our Heavenly Father, you are here. You've never left us. You're present with us. As we sing today, we sing to you because you're near. We pray to you because you're here. Our Heavenly Almighty Father, we're in this room on the basis that you have loved us, and now we ask the question, now what can I do? And today it's going to be singing and it's going to be praying and it's going to be reading the Bible. But tomorrow, if it's loving and if it's caring and if it's sacrificing or, or whatever the case may be, Father, help us respond to the truth that we are loved by you. Let our lives, those who claim to be followers of your son, Jesus, let us start there in the place that we are loved and let that truth be the anchor of our hearts. And as that truth has guided millions, if not billions, of followers of you into the, the arms of the Almighty at the end of our days. Let the truth that we are loved anchor our hearts from now till we take our final breath and let it usher us into the arms of the one who loves us infinitely. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Fill our hearts with gratitude. Change us in recognition of your deep love. We love you, we thank you, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.